Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. This season of Things Not Seen is sponsored in part by Loyola University's Institute for Pastoral Studies. Find out more at luc.edu slash ips. From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. On today's show, our guest Robert Hudson takes us on an amazing pilgrimage into the life and work of the monk Thomas Merton. We look at a pivotal year when his heart is broken and he finds inspiration and healing in the music of Bob Dylan. Stay tuned. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Robert Hudson. For most of his life, he's made his living in and around writers and writing. He's been a teacher, a bookstore clerk, a journal editor, a translator, a book designer, a proofreader, a small press publisher, a writer, and he has certificates in bookbinding and hand printing. For more than three decades, he worked as an editor for Zondervan, a division of HarperCollins. He's also a recognized scholar on the work and life of musician Bob Dylan, and he is a member of the International Society dedicated to the study of the Catholic Trappist monk Thomas Merton. He brings these two passions together in a new book from Erdman's Press called The Monk's Record Player, Thomas Merton, Bob Dylan, and the Perilous Summer of 1966. We'll be discussing that book today. Robert Hudson, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thank you so much, David. Well, for listeners who may be unfamiliar with this name, Thomas Merton, can you briefly tell us who he was? I sure can. Thomas Merton was a English teacher in the 19, late 1930s. He became interested in Catholicism and then became a Trappist monk in 1941. He wrote a best-selling autobiography called The Seven-Story Mountain in 1948. For about a decade, wrote some of the most influential spiritual work in print. No less a writer than C.S. Lewis was impressed with uh, Thomas Merton's spiritual writing. Then in the 1950s, he became quite involved in the anti-war and anti-nuke movement, and he died in 1968. When you say that he was a Trappist monk, for our listeners who may be unfamiliar with the vagaries of Catholic brothers and sisters and orders, when we say he was a Trappist, what exactly does that mean? Trappists were a subset of the Cistercian order of the Catholic Church. So he uh, literally lived in an abbey. They didn't exactly have a vow of silence, but they uh, were one of the more contemplative orders. So he spent most of his day praying, going to Mass, and of course writing. And when we say that he was a Trappist, you say that he started out as an English teacher. What was it that brought him to become part of this order of the Trappists? Oh, that's an interesting question. He did his dissertation at Columbia University in the late 30s 
on the religious implications uh, and nature in the work of William Blake. And I think this, among other things, uh, he worked with Mark Van Dorn, who was a professor at Columbia, and had a lot of spiritual inclinations. And I think just a combination of things led Merton to pursue Catholicism and pursue the idea of becoming a monk. He really liked the medieval mystics, the medieval writers, Thomas Aquinas, and then St. John of the Cross, and a lot of the other mystics. And that really attracted him. And even though he lived in the modern world, he very much wanted to emulate the simplicity of that lifestyle of a medieval monk. And in emulating the simplicity of the lifestyle of a medieval monk, when was he doing this? What was the time period where he made the decision to leave academia and leave from his doctoral studies and go into the monastery? Sure. It was the year of 1941. He was teaching English at St. Bonaventure in in New England, um, and he was asked to join a a community, uh, Catherine de Hook Doherty, in New York City. She had an inner-city ministry, kind of an interracial ministry, and he was debating whether he wanted to work among people, work among the poor in New York, because he felt called to that by God, or whether he really wanted to pursue the idea of becoming a monk. Now, um, at this point, the United States had not entered the Second World War, so Merton decided uh, on December 10th, just after the Pearl Harbor attack, that he would become a monk, partly because monks were exempt from the draft. He had a very low draft number. And it's not so much that he was a draft dodger as that he was uh, very much a pacifist uh, in his own way, although that came to be modified somewhat later, but he decided a monk was the best thing to do. And so he made this decision not to go to this ministry in New York City. Now, as I was reading the book, one of the things that came up for me as a question, I know that Dietrich Bonhoeffer also spent some time in New York City amongst interracial ministries and was very deeply influenced by some of the the interracial work that was being done by some of the churches. Would this have been a similar thing that Thomas Merton would have been invited to go and join, or was this of a different type or order of, of ministry? I think it was very much the same kind of thing, and I'm not sure I'm familiar enough with the Bonhoeffer biography to say whether Bonhoeffer was impressed by Doherty's uh, ministry or not. But I have the feeling, I think I vaguely recall, that he was familiar with uh, Catherine Doherty's inner-city ministry, yeah. And so if I'm hearing you correctly, he's in 1941, in December, he's facing a choice. Either go directly into, I guess, the heart of the city— and New York City being a huge city at the time, a a world center of commerce and a world center of thought and a world center of race relations to go into the heart of that or to withdraw completely and to instead go into a retreat, a seclusion. Is that a fair dichotomy to lay out? Is that the choice that was before him? It really is a fair assessment of his choice. What I find interesting is that he didn't see it as a retreat at all. He very much saw it as uh, participating more fully in the world because he felt that only the solitary monk could view objectively the problems of the world and pray for them. He called the fallen world a wreck, a wreckage, and he said only by escaping from the wreckage can you get a foothold to help other people escape from the wreckage themselves. It's a very powerful image. 
but he did not see it uh, at all as a retreat from the world, but very much as a way of more fully participating in the problems of the world at the time. All of this imagery just stirred up so much for me, and you write about it so evocatively in the book. One of the things that I thought about was the early church thought of the world also as a type of wreckage, and they really thought of the church as the kind of Noah's Ark that was floating on the floodwaters that were to come. Was this a similar sort of thing? So he really thought that he was going to a place of refuge, not to escape from the horrors of the world, but, and you use the word objectively, to better assess the horrors of the world so that he might pray for the world better? Or what was he hoping to do? Exactly. He said that the monastic, the person living in the monastery, is the one who is most capable of showing the world what an alternative lifestyle would be. He called becoming a monk, becoming a new man. And uh, he very much saw it as a model for what uh, everybody should aspire to. Well, and you mentioned earlier on that he was a scholar and had taught Blake. How did, because I know that, you know, we've got images from Blake of the end of the world and the coming apocalypse and the sort of dissolution and anarchy of things. How did that kind of poetic viewpoint influence his thinking at this time, or do you know? Well, I have studied that somewhat. He really was influenced by Blake, and I think it was partly the apocalyptic imagery of Blake that he liked. But I think he really liked the prophetic nature of Blake. Blake's ability to kind of pinpoint the problems of the world and deal with them spiritually. Think of a Blake poem, oh, like his poem about Jerusalem, in which he criticizes the dark satanic mills of the factories of London at the time. And I think Merton was very much impressed with that kind of social involvement in a poetic way. And of course, Merton himself was a poet, and he wrote a number of books of poetry and of prose dealing with a lot of the uh, issues of the time. His social activism is noted by anybody who reads Merton. The poem that you referenced from Blake, where he goes on to say, my sword won't sleep in my hand till we have built Jerusalem and England's green and pleasant land. I always, exactly. I, I always took that poem to be a very activist sort of poem. I would have thought that a person who was influenced by that poem would be the person to go to New York and to be in the thick of it and in the heart of it. So I was so fascinated yeah. by the way that you were characterizing Merton's choice that he actually felt that he was going to a more powerful place by going to the monastery. Yeah. Well, what I find particularly interesting about that is I think that was always a struggle for him. The solitary life versus the act of getting, rolling up his sleeves and getting into the world's problems up to his elbow. But he had a vision, very much like a medieval monk's vision, in 1958 on the streets of Louisville. And he was walking around the business district. He looked around at all the people around him, and he realized that he was one of them and that he loved everybody. It was, it was, it was almost a mystic revelation. And he realized that he really had made the right choice. And in fact, in choosing the monastery, he uh, very much chose both directions at the same time, which I think is kind of interesting. That he becomes one with the world by going into the monastery. And only by becoming a solitary, he become one with the hurting and suffering people of the world. So it's quite an interesting uh, contrast, but that's very much how he saw things. And so, you, as you were saying, this happened just on the streets of Louisville. Do you happen to know, or did he ever write about what it was that prompted that, or did it literally come to him just out of the blue, this beatific moment of, I love everyone? It came 
came to him very much out of the blue. It was very unexpected. The city of Louisville and the state of Kentucky have even put up a plaque which says Thomas Merton, famous monk, had his moment of revelation right here, which did steer his writing in the direction of more social involvement. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Robert Hudson about his new book, The Monk's Record Player. We'll be back in a moment. Looking for signs of hope in the Chicagoland education scene? Bright Promise Fund for Urban Christian Education serves 15 schools in Chicago and nearby suburbs with scholarship funding for students and families in search of quality, faith-based educational options. Visit brightpromisefund.org to learn more about schools where students flourish. Good schools make for good neighborhoods. Brightpromisefund.org. That's brightpromisefund.org. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Robert Hudson about his new book, The Monk's Record Player, Thomas Merton, Bob Dylan, and the Perilous Summer of 1966. Well, the reason why we know the name Thomas Merton, and in fact, I should note that that was not the name that he was known by when he was in the monastery, but the reason why we know the name Thomas Merton is because he was a writer and he was published. How did he get started writing? That's an interesting story. He really came into the world without a home at all. His mother died when he was very young. His father took care of him for a while, but passed him around a variety of relatives and traveled to a lot of countries. In fact, Merton was born in France, and he was a citizen of France until really just the last few years of his life when he got an American citizenship. He was placed, oh, in the high school years, he was placed in a boarding school was very lonely, uh, wandered around the countryside a lot, investigated the local churches, and I think dealt with a lot of his loneliness by writing. When he went to Cambridge for his college years, he uh, ended up becoming somewhat of a, a womanizer and drinker, and that was not working out well for him. So I think that a relative conspired to have him come back to the United States. He went to Columbia where he was classmate with such writers as John Berriman, the Pulitzer Prize-winning poet, uh, Herman Woke, the novelist, and uh, Merton was apprentice pretty much to Professor Mark Van Doren, who was one of the most famous writers and poets of the time, a Shakespeare scholar and other things. So I think that really launched him on his literary career. He also was best friends in college with Robert Giroux, who later became an editor for uh, Harcourt, and then, of course, uh, helped develop the company for R. Strauss and Giroux. He's the same Giroux of that company. Merton was really exposed to a lot of writers early on. Of course, knowing Giroux uh, helped open the door for his autobiography, The Seven Story Mountain, because Giroux published that in 1948. Well, you also mention in the book that there was an internal source at the monastery. I believe the name was Dom Frederick Dunn, who encouraged Merton to be writing this autobiography and to begin to work on it. And I, first of all, do I have that story correct? And if I do, could you flesh that out for us and tell us how did Dom Frederick Dunn come to know that Merton was a writer and was capable of writing a spiritual autobiography? And how did he go about encouraging that? You have that correct. Everybody at the monastery, of course, has to work. The main product of the Abbey of Gethsemane, where Merton was, was cheese, and I think they do fudge still. And so they 
everybody had to work mostly in, in the uh, barns with the cows. But Merton was not particularly happy, and the abbot was aware of that. And so he encouraged Merton to spend some of his work hours writing, and Merton wrote a couple of books about Trappist history in the early 40s. And I think Don, the abbot, realized very quickly how much talent Merton had. So he encouraged Merton to write the story of his life, how he became interested in monasticism. Now, of course, this was really controversial because uh, the Trappists, of course, try to esteem a atmosphere of silence in the, in the monastery. Monks are supposed to keep silent, and Merton was accused of being a talking Trappist, uh, that he was breaking his vow of silence, even though there's technically not a vow of silence in the Trappist monastery, because a lot of people considered publishing a way of talking, of communicating. So he caused a lot of controversy from that point. But as soon as Seven Story Mountain was published, it became a bestseller. It sold over a million copies in the first year and provided a lot of additional income to the monastery and to the Catholic Church in general. In fact, the monastery started earning so much money from the royalties on Merton's books that they were able to contribute money to other monasteries to help keep them afloat. So it was very profitable from that sense for the, for the monastery. Well, you mentioned the Seven Story Mountain, and it was published in 1949, that it sold out in its first print run. I'm very interested, what was the impact of that book within the Catholic Church? Was it universally accepted? Were there those that loved it and others that hated it? How was it received? The book generally was received very well by the Catholic communities. Now, some of later's, Merton's later books were far more controversial. You know, you realize that this was the post-war years, and the intellectual atmosphere there was very difficult. You can imagine a lot of the despair after the war. And a lot of people were reaching out for spiritual answers at that time. You know, it was the era when, you know, the 40s and 50s, when the existentialist philosophers were in the ascendant. And Merton, I think, very much answered a lot of that despair in The Seventh Story Mountain. It's a very hopeful book, a very intellectual book, and he was able to really pinpoint a lot of the reasons why he felt there was hope in the world and hope particularly in uh, Christianity. Now, you mentioned a moment ago that most of the Trappists were working in the barns and helping to make the cheese, and that Merton kind of chafed against that and was eventually encouraged to start to write. But I think maybe a listener or two out there might be wondering, okay, well, didn't he know that that was what he was getting into? Why did he end up at this monastery in Kentucky in the first place? One would imagine that he had his pick of where he could go. Why did he end up there? Oh, that's yeah, that's a very interesting question. Um, a lot of the monasteries that he was looking at were the ones that most adhered to a silent life, a silent contemplative life. First on his list was the Camel de Lis order in Italy. But of course, during the war when Merton wanted to join the monastery, it was pretty much impossible to go to the Italian, rural Italian community where the Camel de Lis monks lived. Merton also considered the Carthusians, but their main headquarter was in Grenoble, France, which was in uh, Vichy-held France, which eventually became Nazi-held France. So the third choice on his list of the most contemplative and solitary, silent orders 
was the Trappist Monastery. Now, he became disenchanted with that, of course, because he really felt, especially during the 40s and the 50s, that the Trappists were not nearly as contemplative or solitary as he had hoped. He had a vision of becoming a hermit, living alone in in a cave by himself, as the Camaldolese monks actually did. But when he got to the Abbey of Gethsemane, the Trappist Abbey, expecting a huge amount of time to himself uh, for prayer and contemplation, he found there was a lot of work to be done in the monastery, a lot of busyness, a very strict schedule that had to be adhered to. So I think that really weighed on him, and he, I think, had a lot of buyer's remorse about the Trappists. And I think Abbot Dunn was very wise to give him the assignment of writing his autobiography to remind him of why he came to the monastery in the first place and also to distract him from you know, some of the shadows lurking in the corners that uh, Merton wasn't willing to face about why he didn't like the Trappists at, the, at that time. Well, one of the things that you say in the book that just floored me was that he spent almost seven and a half, nearly eight years without leaving the monastery at Gethsemane by himself. He was always in someone else's company, and it wasn't until that long period of time had elapsed that he was given permission to simply walk outside the walls by himself one day. And part of what I got from that was the abbots were worried that if he was allowed outside by himself, they'd lose him to the Carthusians. Now, first of all, do I have that timeline correct, and do I have that story correct? Basically, you do. Merton's journals have a long list of other people from the monastery who had escaped from the monastery, literally run away to join the Carthusians. And he knew other people, friends and acquaintances from other monasteries that had joined the Carthusian monasteries. About the time of Seven Story Mountain, he was allowed outside for the first time outside the walls of the abbey. And he did take a walk around the hills and the forests around the abbey. And it was a revelation for him. He went up on one of the hills, and he daydreamed about perhaps building a hermitage just for himself up on the on the hill overlooking the abbey. And in fact, that's exactly what he did. Um, by 1965, a small house had been built, a cabin really, had been built on the hills outside of the abbey. And Merton had lobbied all that time to be allowed to live alone as a hermit, finally. And he was granted permission in 1965 to go and live in the in the Hermitage. Yeah, they, there was a lot of fear, I think, among the Catholic clergy there that he might bolt if he were allowed to travel too far from the monastery. Well, for some listeners, particularly some Protestant listeners who are unfamiliar with what the Catholic Church was like prior to Vatican II, help to flesh out for us why is it that this person who was living in America would feel as if he was not allowed to do certain things. What sort of control did the abbots have over his life at that time? Well, when you go into the monastery, you literally do put your life in the hands of a spiritual director. And in this case, it was the abbot of the monastery, Frederick Dunn, who Merton liked very much. And as a Catholic, Merton wholly respected the spiritual authorities put over him. Now, later on in his career, he started having problems with that. The abbot that replaced Frederick Dunn was not as uh, amenable to some of Merton's ideas as Frederick Dunn had been. But, yeah, it is uh, interesting. I think we don't have as much of that tradition in Protestantism, where a spiritual authority actually decides what you can do, where you should go, 
what the direction of your life should take. So it's interesting that both the abbots that Merton worked under, uh, lived under the direction of, said that Merton was one of the most obedient monks that they had ever known. Now, even though they had Merton, especially with the second abbot, Merton had a lot of controversy, a lot of arguments with them. And yet still, at the end of the day, he would take their direction and do what they said, because as a monk, that's what he was supposed to do. And he trusted that the spiritual authorities knew best for what was good for his life. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalton. We're speaking today with Robert Hudson about his new book, The Monk's Record Player, Thomas Merton, Bob Dylan, and the Perilous Summer of 1966. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. We're speaking today with Robert Hudson about his new book, The Monk's Record Player, Thomas Merton, Bob Dylan, and the Perilous Summer of 1966. Well, I want to fast forward a little bit to getting closer to 1966. So late 1965, Thomas Merton is leaning down to tend a fire and put some wood on the flame, and he gets a sharp pain in his neck. And he later comes to realize this is due to the deterioration of one of the discs, one of the vertebrae in his neck. From there, pick up the story and tell us what are the things that happen next as he goes into the hospital, as he goes into his operation. He has a particular meeting that ends up becoming very important to the story. Yes, that's kind of the heart of the the story that I'm writing. Yeah, he has a, a spinal fusion. Uh, we've all heard of that. This was a what they call a cervical spondylosis, which was a deterioration of the bones in the lower neck and the upper back. So he decided that he should have the operation that the doctors were recommending. At the end of March 1966, he goes to a hospital in Louisville. He takes along his uh, copy of Meister Eckhart's sermons, thinking it's going to be a chance to be by himself and kind of recover from his injuries. And to his surprise, he finds that, first of all, he's a recognized celebrity because a lot of the nurses and doctors in the hospital know exactly who he is. They have a best-selling author on their hands. And then one young student nurse, less than half Merton's age, he was about 50 at the time and she was younger than 25, she comes in and starts talking to him. And before you know it, they're spending a lot of time chatting and talking. She is taking care of his bandages, putting blankets on his bed, leading him out into the grounds of the hospital to the sites around the hospital. There's a famous shrine that is actually still there in, in Louisville called the Lourdes Grotto. So anyway, she and Merton become close friends. Now, Merton leaves the hospital at that time, thinking that he's never going to see this nurse again. Uh, first of all, she's gone off to see relatives in Chicago, and she's also engaged to a U.S. 
Air Force military fellow. Suddenly, he receives a letter from her in early April, around Easter time, just saying that she enjoyed meeting him and talking with him. And in what may be perhaps a very impulsive decision, he writes her a letter in which he declares his love for her. Now, we've talked about the Trappists don't really have a vow of silence, although they esteem a spirit of, of quiet. They do have a vow of chastity, as, as all monks do. So Merton was really taking a chance by declaring his love to this young woman named Margie Smith. She, of course, is panicked, goes to the priest, and her local priest tells her to cut off all communication immediately. Uh, Merton is unaware of how she's responding to this letter. He's probably regretting the decision of having mailed the letter in the first place. So he spends a couple of days hunting down telephones in the monastery to try to call her and find out how she's reacting. By the time he does get in touch with her, he finds that she is responding in kind, that she is, uh, has a lot of affection and romantic feelings for him as well. So they decide to meet clandestinely in Louisville at a restaurant uh, while Merton is in Louisville for a medical checkup a few weeks after the surgery. There I may be jumping ahead of the story a little bit, but they have a very interesting scene there in the hospital where they both discuss the fact that they're in love with the music of Joan Baez. Uh, Merton was able to listen to records, and particularly Joan Baez records, in the monastery library. And they both love the song Silver Dagger, which is the very first song on the first album by Joan Baez, the folk singer. So they, they have a vow, here's another vow, that each of them will listen to Silver Dagger on their record player at 1.30 in the morning, if you can imagine. Uh, that's right when Margie, as a nurse, is getting off her night shift at the hospital. And it's also while Merton is rising for his 2 o'clock mass that he is supposed to attend. So he gets up a half an hour early to listen to the song. So for about a week, they have this lover's vow of listening to the song at the same time, even though they're miles apart. You hear sometimes of lovers saying, we'll look at this star at a certain time, or we'll gaze at the moon at a certain time. And it struck me that a very similar sort of evocation of that. But let me make sure that I've got this correct. So Merton decides to leave a worldly life and to renounce all relationships and all romantic relationships to go into the monastery. He esteems being alone. And yet, here he is smitten, and the way that you write about it, it almost sounds like he's smitten like a schoolboy, like someone much younger. And he goes whole hog, and he follows this crush, and he suddenly, he's sneaking around, and even though he's an obedient monk, he's trying to find a secretive telephone where he can give her a call. This seems to me so out of character with what I would expect if you said... Thomas Merton was a very obedient monk, and he had made the decision to go to one of the most contemplative monasteries in America, if not the world. This is not the behavior I would have expected. Where did this come from? That's a very good point. Merton is nothing if not an incredibly complex and complicated individual. He, of course, lost his mother when he was very young. He had really no nurturing females in his family as he was coming up. He had kind of brief affairs and encounters and may even have fathered a child while he was in college. So he really had no nurturing females in his life up to that point at all. And then when he's in the monastery, of course, he's had epistolary relationships, letter relationships with a number of well-known women, but they're very intellectual relationships, Dorothy Day among them. 
So it's the winter of, I think, 1965-66. That is, of course, the first winter where he's actually living alone in the Hermitage by himself. And this is something that he had wanted for two and a half decades, striving and striving to find a Hermitage of his own, to be alone. And I think he didn't realize that, as I say in the book, the other side of solitude is loneliness. He spends the winter reading the poetry of uh, Maria Reiner Rilke, who, of any poet, is the one who probably most delves into the themes of love and solitude. So Merton was right, as I say in the book. It's really not particularly surprising that Merton fell in love. In fact, it would have been more surprising if he had not fallen in love, because all of these pressures were weighing on him. And to suddenly have a, a woman taking care of him and caring for him must have been after the deprivation of uh, female companionship that he had had since really early in his life. It must have been just an overpowering experience. And so even though he is being disobedient to his vows, in some ways it's understandable. You can you can see how the pressure would have just been overwhelming. Now, it's, we call this an affair, but it's it was, I can't exactly call it a platonic affair. I don't think they ever consummated the relationship. In fact, Merton declares many times in his journals that they didn't, though they were tempted. I'm sure they had a fair amount of physical contact, hugging and kissing kinds of things. But uh, he was they were both very careful not to go all the way, as the kids say. You do mention so it, at, uh, at one point in the book that they steal away after he sprained his ankle and they share a kiss in a secluded spot. And he, I think that the quotation that Merton says in one of his journals or in relating to someone was that that made that almost a perfect day. Am I remembering that correctly? That was. And that, sadly, was one of the last times they were together. Merton's affair with Margie was discovered fairly quickly. They started seeing each other in April of 1966, and by June, uh, two months later, their affair had been discovered by the abbot, and Merton went and confessed himself preemptively to the abbot. It's interesting, too, that Merton was acting in subterfuge because he wrote a number of about 18 love poems for Margie, which he later called the Menendez file, because, of course, he could not send them out of the monastery, because much of the mail was reviewed, and if it was found out that he was sending love letters to a woman, it would have been frowned upon, and he could have lost his vocation as a monk altogether. So he sent them to his publisher, James Laughlin, in New York, under the guise of saying that they were translations of obscure Latin American poets. And he called it the Menendez file. So it is, uh, it's more subterfuge upon subterfuge. Merton really skulking around, uh, making illicit phone calls and meeting Margie. She would come to the Abbey at times as well and hike across the fields to meet him at his hermitage. So it's really quite a story. It's a, it's a touching, touching love story, and, but really fascinating because of the pressures that both of them were under. Well, and it moves so quickly, and very soon after they've met, you write about them having a conversation in which Merton says, okay, I've thought about this, and I think we've got three options. We can, I can hope that the reforms of Vatican II will allow priests to marry, or I can renounce my vows and hope that they'll let me marry you, or we just continue in secret. It, it seems so striking that he he got to that point that quickly where he was willing to renounce everything that he had worked for literally decades for at that point. Yeah, yeah. Margie, at that very point, uh, she says to Merton, perhaps our only option is to just be ourselves. And Merton replies, sadly, that's just not an option. <laughs> Under the 
constraints of the church. Yeah, Merton and Margie were, they, they did reach that point where they had to make that decision. Merton ultimately, as he himself says in his journals, he loved solitude, he loved the monastic life more than he loved Margie. In fact, he said, like his revelation in Louisville, that he could only love Margie by maintaining his monastic life and his solitude. It's again one of those Merton paradoxes of a very complex, complicated spiritual man. What was the effect on Merton, and what was the effect on Margie? Uh, Margie has never gone public. She has never written about the affair, and she refuses to talk to scholars and interviewers. The effect on Merton, however, I think was kind of interesting, and this is where uh, Bob Dylan comes into the story. When he breaks up with Margie, Merton says that he just he wants to revolutionize his own life by writing a new book in a new way. And he has just discovered on this record player that he has in the Hermitage, the records of Bob Dylan, the songs of Bob Dylan. And he is fascinated by the poetry in them. So uh, Merton goes through this honeymoon, really, in September and October of 1966, of listening constantly to Bob Dylan's records, even to the point where he's walking around uh, Louisville with earworms of Bob Dylan songs in his head. He can't get them out of his mind. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Robert Hudson about his new book, The Monk's Record Player, Thomas Merton, Bob Dylan, and the Perilous Summer of 1966. We'll be back in a moment. So for those of you that are longtime listeners to Things Not Seen, you may be aware that I do another show called The Francis Effect with my friend Dan Haran. He's a Franciscan priest. Every couple of weeks, he and I get together to bring you commentary on current events from a perspective informed by our Catholic faith. Now, Dan, why should I be talking to you? Who are you? Who am I? I'm a Franciscan friar, a Roman Catholic priest, and a professor of theology here in Chicago. And that's a good question. I have no idea why you should be talking with me. But if people are interested in what a conversation between you, the otherwise uh, respectable host of Things Not Seen, and me, the not-so-respectable Roman Catholic priest and theologian, I think they should tune in. Yeah, they should definitely tune in. So that's The Francis Effect, and you can find it at FrancisFXPod. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. We're speaking today with Robert Hudson about his new book, The Monk's Record Player, Thomas Merton, Bob Dylan, and the Perilous Summer of 1966. Well, you mentioned in the book that in addition to his encounter with Margie, which was very foundational for what was to follow in the last few years of his life, there were two other meetings. And one is Bob Dylan and encountering the music of Bob Dylan. The other is a meeting with the Buddhist monk Thich Nhat Hanh. Oh, yes. Thanks for asking that, because that's a fascinating story. Thich Nhat Hanh, you could almost define as the Vietnamese Thomas Merton. They were both monks. Thich Nhat Hanh was a Zen Buddhist monk. They both had founded peace organizations. Uh, they both did a lot of writing for the anti-war movement. So it was really quite an important meeting. And this, of course, took place right in the middle of Martin's secret affair with Margie. This was actually took place just a few weeks before the affair was discovered. So in the midst of Martin being distracted by his affair with Margie, he meets with Thich Nhat Hanh. And it was a very productive meeting, quite famous in the, in the history of the anti-war movement of the 60s. 
Well, maybe we can talk about just briefly that last chapter in Merton's life. So after all of this, he's wanting to be alone. He's had this dalliance that was very important to him, both spiritually and poetically, with Margie Smith. He gets a chance to meet one of the sort of touchstones for that affair because they were both listening to Silver Dagger, the Joan Baez song, and then he gets to meet Joan Baez. And and Joan Baez says, you need to get out more and, and you need to lecture and others are encouraging him to do this. And so finally he gets permission to do it. But then pick up the story from there. So he gets permission to leave the monastery. And what happens after that? Right. Well, another one of these fascinating strains in Merton's life is his interest in Asian monasticism and Asian religions in general. So he is asked to lecture in California to a group of monastics there in early 1968. And that trip turns out to be quite a success, and his abbot does allow him to plan for an Asian trip during which Merton is actually allowed to meet the Dalai Lama, for instance. The Dalai Lama became quite enchanted with Thomas Merton. Merton had two audiences with the Dalai Lama. The Dalai Lama said that Merton was the first person in his life that made him understand true Christianity, I think is how he phrased it, that Merton was the first time he really understood true Christianity. In fact, the Dalai Lama, when he came to the United States about 12 years after Merton's death, he made a point of putting on his itinerary a visit to the monastery so that he could pray at Merton's grave, which I think is a very interesting fact. So Merton is traveling throughout Asia, Southeast Asia, Japan, He ends up in uh, Bangkok, and this was really the point of the whole trip. They had planned a a kind of East-meets-West monastic conference where monks, Buddhist monks, and monks from some of the other Eastern religions would meet with Catholic monks from the Asian Pacific region, and Thomas Merton was one of the featured speakers. Uh, There was, unfortunately, an accident after one of Merton's lectures, which is actually filmed. You can YouTube Thomas Merton's last lecture, and it is the only video we have of Thomas Merton actually speaking. We have a couple of videos of him moving around with no soundtrack, but this is the only video we have of his actual speaking. So he finishes his lecture, and he goes upstairs. A couple of hours later, he takes a shower. He comes out of the shower and goes to turn on the electric fan in his room, and it's got a short circuit in it, and he is electrocuted and killed. That was how he ended his life, and yet uh, that was something he, he, he died doing something he deeply, deeply loved, which is reaching out, building bridges, making connections with other religious people, learning more about their traditions and cultures. Do we know whether Bob Dylan ever acknowledged any kind of debt to Thomas Merton or that he was influenced in any way by Merton or his writings? Or has Dylan largely remained silent on that front? I wish we could say he did. Dylan, of course, became very much an evangelical Christian in 1978 through about 1981. But I find no evidence. I, I scanned through 1,300 pages of Bob Dylan interviews and could not find any evidence that he was familiar with with Thomas Merton's writing. On the other hand, early in his career, Bob Dylan was active in the peace movement. He knew Joan Baez, of course, who we know was familiar with Thomas Merton's writings. Merton wrote a famous poem called The Original Child Bomb, which was published in 1962, which is one of the most powerful anti-nuke statements of the era. Bob Dylan's girlfriend, Suze Rotolo, was very involved in the anti-nuke movement, and I can't help but feel that she would have known that 
home and maybe even shared it with Dylan. Other than that, we really have no evidence whatsoever. The one interesting connection, however, is that Lenny Bruce, the comedian of all people, found a poem of Thomas Merton that he loved and adapted into one of his comedy routines. Merton wrote a poem called A Chant to be Used in a Procession Around a Place with Furnaces, which was about the Holocaust. Lenny Bruce turned it into a very dark satirical comedy routine called My Name is Adolf Eichmann, which he recited in a fake German accent. We do know that at about that period, Bob Dylan did go see Lenny Bruce. So there's a chance that Dylan might have heard the name Thomas Merton at that point, too. But other than that, there's no documentary evidence. I wish I could say there was. Well, you're both a Bob Dylan scholar, and you're a member of the International Thomas Merton Society, and you've steeped yourself in this story, and you've you've unearthed these connections between these two pivotal thinkers in late 20th century anti-war and creativity and writing and music and literature. How has this affected you as you've been doing this work? That's really interesting. I think the thing that really fascinates me about both writers is that they both allowed every moment to be formative for them. We usually think of people having their most formative moments in college or their first job or their marriage or whatever. But as artists, I think both Merton and Dylan were incredibly aware of every moment and absorbing it. Bob Dylan, one of his famous statements is that he was asked uh, who influenced him. And he said, everything, man. Just open your eyes and ears and you're influenced. And Merton was very much of that same school of kind of artistic perception. And I think that's the, the takeaway I get, that you just be aware of every moment, be conscious of what's happening around you, and just let everything influence you and be part of you. Well, Robert Hudson, I don't know Thomas Merton's work or Bob Dylan's work nearly as well as you do, but I learned a great deal from this book, and I came away from this book wanting to know more about them both. It's just a fantastic piece of work. Thank you for writing it, and thank you for speaking to us about it today. Thank you so much, David. I really appreciate this opportunity. It's an honor to talk with you. We've been speaking with Robert Hudson. For most of his life, he made his living around writers and writing. He's been a teacher, a bookstore clerk, a journal editor, a translator, a book designer, a proofreader, a small press publisher, and a writer himself. He has certificates in bookbinding and handprinting, and for more than three decades, he worked as an editor for Zondervan, a division of HarperCollins. He's a recognized scholar of the work and life of musician Bob Dylan, and he's a member of the International Society dedicated to the study of the Catholic Trappist monk Thomas Merton. We've been speaking today about his new book called The Monk's Record Player, Thomas Merton, Bob Dylan, and the Perilous Summer of 1966. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park, here on the south side of Chicago. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC is responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. It's made possible in part through the generosity of our supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and to find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. 
And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.